So far we've seen um, the word of Christmas. Jesus presented at the beginning of all of creation with God and as God. Jesus was the word that the Father spoke which brought all of existence into being. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself was the agent that created all things. He himself was light and he gave light to men because he is the sustainer of life itself. Last week we saw that Jesus is the light of Christmas. John the writer tells us that John the Baptist came and he, care, he came to bear witness to Jesus as the light of the world. And how did people react? Well, John tells us that both the world, all unbelievers, and Jesus' own people, the Jewish nation of Israel, they chose to reject him as their Savior, as he was shining his light upon their sin to expose it. And instead of humbling themselves and turning to him and repenting, they ran in the opposite direction. Yet, we finished off last week by seeing that there were also those who received and who believed Jesus the light. Those who humbled themselves acknowledging that his light had to shine on their sin and that they had to repent and turn to him. To these, Jesus has made children of God. This wasn't through the plan of man. It wasn't through human agency. It was instead through the divine will of God. And now today, in the remaining verses, 16 to 18, John will finish his prologue showing us the glory of Jesus as he comes into the world. Typically, the moment that we most associate to Christmas is this manger. Right? The place where Jesus himself laid as a baby. Because it is the visual aid that we have that God came into the world. This is the part that we get to focus today in our text. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is this exact moment where we see God displaying the fullness of his glory. And he demonstrates the fullness of his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. First, we see the need of beholding his glory. This is where John starts off in verse 14. He actually comes back right to verse 1 by using the word, word, or the term, word. Again, we see John describing Jesus in verse 1 as the pre-existing word that existed before the creation of the world. He was there. And he was there with God because he himself was God. And just in like verse 9, once again, what do we see? Well, we see what we call the incarnation. We see 
that the writer uses extremely strong language to describe Jesus being enfleshed. How does our text start? And the word became flesh. John doesn't say that Jesus became a man. And he doesn't say that Jesus took on a body. He says that God takes on the complete form of what it means to be human. That at a specific time in history, God comes to his world. This is God's extreme self-disclosure of how he chooses to reveal himself. Listen, he puts on what he himself created, humanity. Jesus chooses to participate in human nature while at the same time having his divine nature. So Jesus is fully God and fully human all at the same time. And he dwelt among us. The word dwelt means to tabernacle, to pitch one's tent, to settle down in a permanent place. So God doesn't just become human. He comes to be with his people. I'm not sure about you, but... Has anyone here ever had someone come and live with them in their house? I have. It's different, right, than just having somebody come over for a meal or for a sleepover, right? Why? Well, because they're coming into your home to take up permanent residency, right? All of their mail is going to come where now? To your house. Right? When their friends and family want to come over, they're coming to your house. Because now your house is their house. Your whole life has to shift to accommodate now for the fact that someone is living with you. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? It could be uncomfortable. I had Roger living with me for almost two years. It was the best two years of our lives. Right, honey? It was great. And I'm saying that sincerely. We had such great conversations. We were able to spend so much time together. Sometimes I long for those days. Because life gets busy, hectic, right? This is what dwelt among us means. Jesus moves into the world. To be with humanity. You see, God desires to be with his people. And he does so in a more personal way. So the word takes on flesh. Jesus came and he set up a permanent residency with his Jewish people. He came to be with them. Emmanuel. God with us. And John says... That he himself is an eyewitness to this truth. 
He intentionally uses the words, look in the text, us and we, to speak of witnessing the historical Jesus himself. So John isn't speaking something that he is far removed from. He is speaking of something that he himself has seen with his own eyes. He says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus came and John beheld the glory of God. Why? Because John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Jesus had called John himself to come and follow him. But if we don't understand how God was with his people in the wilderness in the Old Testament, we're going to miss the amazingness, the awesomeness of what it meant for God to take on flesh to be with his people and to be able to show his glory through the person of Jesus. You see, a lot of what John says in verses 14 to 18, it's based on the book of Exodus where we see God's glorious presence amongst his people for the first time. You see, John's audience, who was Jewish, they would have understood right away what John was getting at. Why? Because again, we see John pointing us back to the Old Testament, to when God's presence was with the people of Israel as they were wandering in the desert. You see, God instructed Moses... In Exodus 25, 8, to build a tabernacle so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. A place for his physical presence to rest. We see this in Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, God has the desire to be with his people. And he tells his people, build me a place so that I can come and be with you. God desired to be with his people. And how does he physically display his presence? Well, look at what it says in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it, that it was taken up. Listen to verse 38 now. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. You see, the people of Israel knew that God was with them daily because they had a visible indicator. They saw the glory of God's presence on the tabernacle. During the day, they saw the cloud. And at night, they saw the fire. 
And when they woke up in the morning and they stretched and they got out of their own tents and they looked at the tabernacle and they saw the cloud, they knew God is there. And when they said goodnight to all of their family and friends and they were going to bed and they looked at the tabernacle and they saw the fire there, they knew God is there. It was the visible display of the glory of God, of him telling his people, I am with you. And when the cloud got up and moved, Israel knew it was time to pack up and start following the cloud. And if they saw the fire move at night, they knew it was time to pack up and to begin to follow the fire. Because they wanted to be where the presence of God was. Now, John is saying that Jesus is the display of the glory of God on earth. Please. I have never struggled so much to try to understand and explain God's word in my whole life. And feeling so inadequate to try to explain something that is so amazing and awesome. That God himself chooses to come to be with us. That in the same way that Israel saw the glory of the presence of God through the cloud and fire. And that they knew that God was with them. Now God is present with his people through the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That when they saw Jesus, they knew that God was with them. And we see that through Jesus' own life that he demonstrates the glory of God through his supernatural miracles. By healing people. By setting people free from demon possession. Yet the greatest display of the glory of God through Jesus Christ is his hanging on the cross. Where he willingly hangs there for the good of humanity. Where, where he displays, I, God, came to pay my own requirements because humanity couldn't. And here it is for all of you to see. Jesus himself, he said this in John 12, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is speaking of his own death in that moment and saying that it will be a display of the glory of God. Jesus, who is the full display of God on earth, John tells us, holds this unique relationship with God himself because he says that Jesus is the only son from the Father. You see, this only here means unique or singular. John wants to make it abundantly clear that there is this difference with what he's saying here in verse 14 from verse 12. Because in verse 12, if you were to remember, Jesus is the one who gives each one of us the right to be the children of God. Each one of us are sons and daughters of God. Amen? For those who believe and for those who have received him, Jesus himself has given the right to become children of God. But Jesus himself is not the son of God like you and I are the son of God. You see, Jesus himself is the only son of God who has this singular, unique purpose to know God like no one else knows God. Because he himself is God. 
He is the only Son of God. Why? This speaks of his role as a second person of the Trinity, of being sent into the world by God the Father, and of his character, of coming and humbling himself to the point of the Father's will to go to the cross to save the world. He is the only Son of God in that regard, in terms of role and in terms of character. What he has come to do because of who he is. Only the Son of God, who has been sent by God, can perfectly display the glory of the Father. Did you hear that? It is only the Son of God, who has been sent by God, who can perfectly dis display the glory of God. And then we get to the end of verse 14, where John says that the Son of God, who has come to display the glory of God, to be able to live in the midst of his people, he is full of of grace and truth. See, grace and truth describes the ministry that Jesus came to accomplish, which is rooted in who he is and his character. John once again brings us back to Exodus 34, showing us that it is God's presence where the fullness of grace and truth flow from. He says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, speaking about Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Look at how God describes himself in his own name in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's character. This is how he is saying that he is going to treat his people of Israel. And now John is telling us that Jesus is going to be treating the people that he's going to be ministering to in the exact same way. Why? Because he's giving of his own fullness of who he is. See, Jesus, who is the glory of God, his presence on earth is full of grace. Meaning that God has come to give of himself to undeserving people. Are you with me? Because this is what grace means. Grace means to receive something that we do not deserve. To be shown kindness that we don't deserve. So God comes to his fallen creation who finds itself in sin to be kind to you and to me. And, and, and did you get the word fullness there? Which means that there is an inexhaustible amount that can never be depleted. There is nothing that we can do or ever be able to do. There are no good deeds, no sacrifices that will ever make us worthy of receiving God's grace, of his kindness. And God is also, like we see here, full of truth. The God-man, Jesus in the flesh. All that is true, all that is pure, all that is holy, Jesus is full of. And this is what he will come and show and exemplify through his life. And what you get the sense of is over these last three weeks, through the prologue, that John the author is amplifying, helping us understand the fullness of the identity of who Jesus Christ is. There is this exclusive claim. Jesus is God. Say with me, Jesus is God. There is no other religious leader, there is no other holy man that has ever made this claim and proven it through his resurrection power. 
there is only one Savior. Jesus said, there is only one way through the Father. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one else comes to the Father except through me. So this Christmas, as we prepare to receive Jesus in the next week, my hope and prayer for us is that we would behold him, is that we would see the glory of God, that we would see the fullness of grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Because it is only through him that we have salvation. And we know that we are not deserving. And we know that there's nothing that we can do to receive it. The question is, this Christmas, will you be thankful? And let me just say this. I hear the news and it's incredible. You know, people are saying that they feel like this Christmas is finally going to feel Right? COVID looks like it's in our rearview mirror. So we're going to be able to get together with our families and our friends and experience and exchange gifts and eat lots of food. But there is nothing normal about Christmas. It is the most abnormal event in all of history because it's when God chooses to come to humanity, to take on human form, to come and to be kind to us. Let me ask you if that's what you're going to be spending time over these next two weeks remembering. Is it that? I hope it's not your PlayStation 5. Beholding his glory. And then John says that we have the opportunity of witnessing his glory in verse 15. John the writer is not only a witness himself to Jesus' ministry because he was one of the disciples, but he speaks of another John who was also a witness, John the Baptist. We already know who John is in part because of verses 6 to 8. And now we have further proof of someone who came testifying that God came in the flesh. That God came to be human. Though John came first in terms of timeline, he wants to make sure that he identifies Jesus in two different ways from himself. You see, because in the Jewish culture, you would give primacy to the firstborn. And especially if the firstborn was a male. Why? Because it was guarantee that you could continue the lineage of your family through your name. And so there was primacy that was given to the oldest, the one who came first. And John needs to make sure that just because he came first in terms of time, it doesn't mean that he's first in terms of importance. And so he clarifies this. And if you see in your Bible, this verse is like in parenthesis. Because it almost feels like it doesn't fit with verses 14, 16, and 17. But John the writer is giving us this just so that in everyone's minds and hearts it's clear that John the Baptist knew precisely, clearly, that he was nothing like Jesus. Oh, 
And he was nothing like Jesus in two ways. And he made this clear as he's in the wilderness screaming out of the top of his lungs. And he says, Jesus ranks before me. He says that in verse 15. Jesus ranks before me. Jesus is superior to me in every way. Jesus is God who takes on flesh. Who has come to display the glory of God. This word rank means dignity. And to surpass one in terms of authority. So when John says that Jesus, the word, ranks over me or before me, he is saying that Jesus has much more authority than I do myself. He wants everyone to know this, that there is no comparison between his role and between who Jesus is, that in every way Jesus is greater. And John willingly humbles himself. And in the second way, he says that Jesus was before him in, this, in the sense of time. You see, John the Baptist... I don't know if you guys know this, but here's a little secret. John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin. Who was born a bunch of months before Jesus is. So guess who's older? John the Baptist. And so who starts their ministry first? John the Baptist. And what's John the Baptist's role? Well, he knows he's the forerunner. It's his job to prepare the way for people to meet Jesus. And he wants to make sure that even though he came first in terms of role in ministry, that in reality, Jesus came first because Jesus was before him in the sense that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then Jesus is preeminent because Jesus was at the beginning of all things. He was before me. Yeah, man, I came first and he came after, but he really was the one who came first because he was there right at the beginning and I wasn't. You get the sense that he understands his role. He's humble. And that Jesus is superior in dignity because he is eternal in every way. And John wants to make that abundantly clear. So we see there is the beholding of glory. There is the witnessing of glory. And I just want to ask you, will you witness to this glory? Are you and I willing to be like John the Baptist? Are, are we willing to go and have conversations with our friends and families? I'm not telling us to go and be like John, to get out of the theater and to cry out in the wilderness like he did. Because you know what that would mean, right? People would think we would be crazy. Can you imagine leaving the theater and being like, there is one who comes who is before me. He is so much superior. He ranks before me. And you're like, wow, do they serve alcohol in this theater? Because I know on some of the other VIP ones, they do. But you and I have the opportunity every single day to witness to this glory who is Jesus, God in the flesh, with the people that we come into contact with. Do we? Third, experiencing his glory. We're coming closer to the end here now, verses 16 and 17. The writer returns to describing Jesus as God, the one whose fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. It's from Jesus' fullness that we have received because he is the source that keeps on giving. This is what John is saying here. And we see Paul saying the same thing in Colossians 1.19. 
that God was pleased to have all of this fullness to dwell in the person of God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Can you grasp that? That the fullness of God, all of it, is in the person of Jesus. All of who God is, his identity, his nature, and all that he has, all of his resources are found in Jesus. And God shares who he is and what he has with us by coming. You see, it's not just that Jesus comes. It's that Jesus comes to give of himself. God gives of who he is to you and to me. Jesus is the source of all grace. Because he himself is grace. I want you to think of it in this sense. Jesus is like a well that never runs dry. He always has grace to give to us who need. Jesus never runs out. Jesus is like a jar of water that you pour out, but always stays full. There's always more to give. Jesus is like an electric current that can never be interrupted or turned off with a switch. He's always constant and full of power. Nothing can ever short-circuit him. His light can never turn off. Jesus is like a waterfall that keeps pouring, like a steady stream of rushing water that keeps falling over the edge. Jesus is full, and his fullness can never be exhausted because he is the one who gives grace upon grace. He gives from his inexhaustible resources. Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. And there's something important that we need to understand here when he says that we have received of the fullness, grace upon grace. Because if we don't understand this, we can be confused to believe that this grace upon grace is for everyone. And it is not. Because John says it clearly that this grace upon grace is only for those who have received. And now we're coming back again to verse 12 where it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's to those who have received and who believed in Jesus, who have been given the right to become children of God, who have access to all of who God is. Are you with me? Or else we're going to think everyone has access to all of God's grace. And that is not true. For us who believe and who have received, to us we have the fullness, the completeness of all of who God is. The world doesn't get that. You see, Jesus comes and reveals the glory of God. He is the light that shines. How does the world react? It rejects. And because it rejects, it can never know and it can never experience the fullness of who God is because their eyes are still veiled. They cannot see and they cannot behold and they cannot experience the fullness of the goodness of who God is. 
But we have received the fullness of grace upon grace. Jesus makes the exclusive claim, not us. He's the one who says that he is God in the flesh, that he is the only way to the Father. There is no other. Imagine being able to come to Jesus knowing that he has everything you need. Imagine coming to Jesus knowing that he will never fail you. Imagine coming to Jesus knowing that he has all of the grace to supply you with. And the temptation when we look upon grace upon grace, we automatically think physically, humanly, right? Oh, wow, so everything I need in this earth, God is going to give me. But that's primarily not what he's talking about here. This grace upon grace isn't material possessions. It isn't wealth. It isn't the temporal things of this world. It is the grace upon grace of the revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus that we have the opportunity to get to know more of and more of and more of and more of. The Apostle Paul made this abundantly clear. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in who? Christ. With what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So all that we need that is supernatural and divine and eternal, all of the blessings of God are found in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him, we have every spiritual blessing. And so we need to spend less time thinking about the temporal, the things that are here today and gone tomorrow, and spend more time focusing on those things that are eternal, which will last forever. And then this is the grace upon grace that he's speaking of that now we have the opportunity to experience. But what does this grace upon grace mean specifically? What is, what is John trying to get at by grace upon grace? Well, this expression isn't talking about exchanging. Okay, this language. Does that make sense? John isn't saying, hey, you have this grace. Now this grace, it isn't good anymore. Or it's obsolete now. So now we're going to give you this grace instead. So by a grace upon grace, he's not saying this grace instead of this one. Where you have to choose one because this one is so much better than this one. Does that make sense? John is instead using addition language. You've had this grace for some time. And now on this grace, you're going to build this grace which is so much better. How many, how many of you guys know what I'm talking about? You know the foundation of your house is the ugliest thing? Or not? I don't know if you guys have ever seen the foundation of your home. It's not pretty. That's why it's buried. Yes, it holds up the structure of your house 100%. But what's the pretty part? How many of you guys have dressed up your foundation this year for Christmas? But the outside of your house, the inside of your house, that's where all the action is, right? So there's this building, right? It's grace upon grace. This grace was good for a time. It was, it was sufficient. It did its job. But now on, top, on this one, you got to put this one on top because it's so much better. This is the kind of language that John is using here to try to help us understand what it means. Why? Well, because you could never... <laughs> Exhaust God's grace. God's grace builds upon more grace. It's an ever-increasing 
where he dispenses continually to his people over time. How many of you guys know those gumball machines or those candy like we have some here in the theater? You probably see your kids there all the time. And they try to turn and twist. What is the hope? Hmm? Right? Like, right? And, 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 and when they look at it, they know in their minds, that always has what I want. Right? That's like God. So what does this really mean, grace upon grace? Well, John explains in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace came through, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so John gives us two stages. Addressing the Old Testament covenant that God made with the people of Israel and the new covenant which came through the person of Jesus Christ. The first stage was the law that was given through Moses. God gave his people his word, the law, the Ten Commandments. Remember? And it was at Mount Sinai when Israel was wandering through the desert, when God had rescued them from Egypt, when they came to Mount Sinai, where God made his covenant with his people. God told his people, you are my people. You are my possession. I want to be in intimate relationship with you. I will reveal myself to you through the cloud and through the fire, showing my glorious presence with you. But here is the covenant. If you follow my law, then you will show that you are my people. And I will be faithful to you. And who's the mediator of this law? Who did God give this law to, to give to the people? Moses. He was the mediator. And this in itself was an act of God's grace. God kindly told his people that what it meant to follow him looked like this. The law is an act of grace. It's an act of God showing his kindness to his people by telling him who he is. Over time, the law became synonymous not just with the Ten Commandments, but with all of the Old Testament. So many times it was called the law in the prophets. That it was God's revelation. It was God's word meant to be followed by his people. It was how he chose to reveal himself, the totality of who he was to his people. And this grace of the law was sufficient. And that the goal of the law fulfilled its purpose. It was to show God's people that they were unable to be faithful to his law. That was always the purpose of the law right from the beginning. It, it wasn't that they would go about trying to obey 613 regulations every single day of their life. It was to show them that they were inadequate. Why? Because in the law of the Old Testament, you see God's character. God was holy. God is just. God is righteous and he is truthful. And yet it also revealed who the people of Israel were. They were not holy. They were not just, they were not righteous, or they were, and they were not truthful. And it showed them their deep need of having someone to come to be able to fulfill the law on their behalf because they couldn't do it for themselves. Are you with me? And so the law of the Old Testament is beautiful. It's God's act of grace towards humanity to show humanity that it needs God. This is that first stage of grace. 
And then comes the second stage, grace upon grace, building on. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The final stage of God revealing his grace is through the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. This was a display of God's grace. For the first time, we see John the author finally in verse 17 giving Jesus a title. To this point, Jesus has been the word. To this point, to John, Jesus has been the life. But for the first time, we hear John identifying the light and the word as Jesus Christ. The anointed one that God had promised to send to save his people. And how does God send to faithfully, how does, who does God send to faithfully fulfill the law? Who? Think about the question. Who does God send to faithfully follow the law and fulfill it? Himself. Yes, the answer is Jesus. But it's himself. Because Jesus is God. John shows us that Jesus is not just greater than John the Baptist, but Jesus himself is greater than Moses in every way. God's grace in revealing his character and will through the law with Moses was good. Yet, his maximum act of revealing his grace was by taking on flesh, becoming himself human, so that he himself could follow the law. Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, I didn't come to do away with it. Because it's God's grace to humanity. It's God's way of knowing that we can never reach a holy, just, and pure God. It reveals our sin, just like Jesus is the light that shines in us. And exposes our brokenness and wretchedness in our sin. And we know that we need a Savior. That is the purpose of the law. It's to be that mirror showing us that we need Him. So Jesus Christ comes Himself. He follows all the requirements of the law, which we are unable to. The law is good because it shows us that we need a Savior. And how does Jesus do this? Well, it's with grace and truth. Just like John mentioned in verse 14, here we see it again in verse 17, that Jesus comes and begins now through his earthly minutes ministry to dispense, to, to hand out grace, as it were, to show kindness. How does Jesus do this through his ministry? He preaches. He teaches. He heals. He touches. He delivers. And he points people to God the Father. Of his fullness, there is no end. Jesus' well of grace never runs out. And he continues to give and to give and to give through his earthly ministry. He's able to give of his infinite resources to humanity. We can never deplete him because he is God in the flesh. Because he has a super abundance, an unlimited supply of grace, of his goodness to give to us, which we do not deserve. So God comes and he makes a new covenant with his people. 
He builds that grace from the law upon the grace. And now who are his people? It's those who have believed and who have received God in the flesh, who is no other than who? Jesus Christ. And finally, we get the whole point wrapped up for us in verse 18. We see so clearly. How does Jesus display this grace and truth through his ministry? Well, John tells us in verse 18 that it is by perfectly revealing God the Father, making him known. Let me just finish off by saying this. You see in the text clearly that John tells us that no one has ever seen God. Where do you think John, the writer, is pointing us back again? What's well, to the Old Testament, to Moses. Do you remember that moment in the text when Moses turns to God and says, Lord, show me your glory. Remember? And what does God respond to Moses' request? You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God tells Moses, listen, there is no way that any human being can break the barrier of being able to see God and to still live. No one has ever done that and no one can ever do that. So no one has ever seen God in the flesh. But there was one. And you look at verse 18, what does it go on to say? Well, it's the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Again, John echoes back to verse 1. He ends the same way he started. By pointing us and showing us that the word Jesus, who was at the beginning, who was with God, was God. And that it is only Jesus who is God, who is at the Father's side. And the word here for side, do you know what it is? It's, it's bosom. Emmanuel, say with me, bosom. Bosom. Do you know who you hold in your bosom? Who? Those that you love. Those that you cherish. Those who you want near. And, and, and John is showing here the intimacy that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is with God and God holds on to him tightly and closely because of the love and affection that they have for one another. So who better to make God known the Father than God the Son who is held tightly by God the Father to show who he is? I just want to end with saying this. Do you know what the word known here means? It means to interpret something. So John ends off by telling us that throughout Jesus' ministry, that his role was to explain who God the Father is. Because he is the only one who is God who is intimately connected to the Father, who could reveal who God is. Are you with me? So God comes, and God becomes human, takes on flesh, so that we can know who God the Father is. And so Jesus becomes an exegete. Do you know what I'm doing right now? How I'm trying my best in my humanity to explain the Word of God? This is what Jesus did in his ministry. He came. And in every word that he spoke, he spoke it to reveal who God the Father was. All of his teaching, all of his preaching, his whole ministry 
was to make God the Father known. This is the last text. You may stand to your feet, please. On this glorious day. Jesus said that he came to reveal the Father. This is what it says in John 14, 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, look closely. If anyone had, if, if any, if you had known me, you would have what? Known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How do the people know God and have seen God? Who have they seen? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Paul says this in Colossians 1.15. Look. He is, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. We see God's glory display through every action and teaching that Jesus makes because everything that Jesus does perfectly reveals who God the Father is. This Christmas, I pray that you and I would behold the glory of Jesus. That in him we would see that the word became flesh to dwell with us. That Jesus lowered himself becoming human so that you and I could have of his fullness so that we can live every day knowing that as we look to Jesus, we see God the Father himself and that it is only through the person of Jesus that you and I have the right to become children of God. I pray that this morning as we worship that you would be blessed, that you would be so thankful that Jesus Christ came, that God came for you and me. And I pray that you would experience his grace in your life.